The psalm for today is Psalm 147, verses 7 through 20. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving, make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds, prepares rain for the earth, makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the animals their food and to the young ravens when they cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the speed of a runner. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He grants peace within your borders. He fills you with the finest wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down hail like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his ordinances. Praise the Lord. And the gospel for today is from the 24th chapter of Luke, verses 13 to 35. Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us because it is almost evening and the day is nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed, and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, 
And they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. I want to begin today by thanking the chapel, thanking Nicholas for having this happen again every year. It is a very, very special moment in the life of you, I hope, to hear this, to experience this wonderful, these wonderful works by Bach that were meant to be heard in this setting during a service. These were not concert pieces. I also very much want to thank Susan for spearheading, leading, organizing, and, and making it, actually making it possible for it to happen. And thank all of those who you have also uh, contributors who have made it possible. I dearly love the words to today's opening hymn. It's a very familiar tune, Hallelujah, Sing to Jesus. And there's also the Christmas one, which is... Come thou long expected Thank you, Advent. Come thou long expected Jesus. I, I think the Hallelujah, Sing to Jesus. The words were written by Tom Troger, who many of you uh, will remember, preached on the Bach Cantata at this chapel for many years. He has an intense love of nature. He hears music and feels the presence of God in all our natural surroundings. I consider him to be a modern-day psalmist, a writer of lyrical, sacred poetry. The psalm that you heard this morning expresses the same feelings, seeing God in all the wonders of nature. It is the very one that was set at the service where the cantata that you will hear this morning was first heard in 1731. It was written for Easter Monday, a day when many of our, our churches typically take a break from the intensity of the observance of Holy Week, culminating in the joyous celebration of Easter. My home church, St. John's Church in Cold Spring Harbor, closes the church office. The staff takes a much-needed and well-deserved day off. In Box Church, however, Easter Monday was a continuation of the exploration of the events immediately following the resurrection. So along with the other demands of his Leipzig church duties, passions, cantatas, organ works needed for Holy Week and Easter, Bach prepared this cantata. There is no letting up of his invention and energy in spite of the burden of having to add it to his already heavy musical schedule. Now, a little bit of full disclosure here, he actually transcribed it from a secular cantata that he had written during his previous job in Curtin, a common practice at the time. Um, but he changed the text. It, it, was, it was a secular one for the birthday of the, the Archduke of Curtin. So, but he wrote this text and inserted it, incorporated it, incorporating both the joy of God's creation as expressed in the psalm for today and also indirectly exploring the hopes and fears of the apostles as experienced by the two apostles on the road to Emmaus. Jesus was not revealed to them at first, so in a sense, he was kind of eavesdropping, hearing them tell of how they felt about the loss of their Lord. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Implicit in that expression of hope is the fear that maybe he wasn't the Savior they had expected. 
This dialogue between hope and fear is the basis for this entire cantata. The opening chorus is one of the longest and most exciting to be found in Bach's early works. It begins and continues with a headlong rush of notes in the strings and winds, a theme that recurs throughout this opening piece. The choir enters with a lively dance theme, Rejoice you hearts, flee you sorrows, the Savior lives and rules within you. And if you would, um, I'm going to be going through each section a little bit, and if you'd like to follow just now as I talk about each section, then it might help clarify when we get to it what's happening, because I'm going to be quoting from it. So the, the translation is there side by side with the German. The theme of joy and rejoicing is the dominant feeling of this cantata. However, this theme is contrasted in the middle section, where the bass and alto soloists refer to mourning, fear, anxious despair. The mood changes, the tempo slows, the orchestration lightens, the harmonies become rather strange, with poignant descending chromatic passages. The listener is being introduced to the central argument that is developed throughout the cantata, this conflict between hope and fear. The chorus ends with a return to the opening affirmation of the revival of the Savior's spiritual kingdom. Note that the opening words, the name of the cantata, signifies its very personal nature, rejoice you hearts. Not rejoice all Christians, but rejoice you hearts. Today, we sometimes think of recitatives both in opera and in sacred works as uh, kind of an interruption between the pieces of main musical importance, the arias and the choruses. However, in recitatives, the importance of the words is heightened by being set with bare-bone accompaniments so that the words themselves may predominate. The arias that follow reinforce and reflect on and give emotional expression to the words of the recitatives. The base recitative assures us that the Savior lives. Because Bach considers these words very special, he accompanies them not with just the harpsichord and cello, but with all the strings in long-held notes, a technique that later, in, in his passions, he reserves for the words of Jesus. The bass aria, number three, that follows, it follows the same structure as the opening chorus. It begins with an instrumental section, followed by the singer, an instrumental interlude, a slightly contrasting middle section, then a return to the beginning. The first section, thanking God for his mercy and eternal faith, contains many elements of the joyful dance that characterizes the Easter celebration of the opening chorus. Using the device of word painting, the bass extends the note on the word eviga, eternal, for several measures. See if you can pick that up as he comes there. The middle section, with a slightly more serious tone, declaims that, Je uh, that Jesus appears to give us peace. Here, he extends the word frida, or peace, in the same manner as he did with eviga. Interestingly, the final line, daily his mercy is renewed, is often found carved into sideboards of, and furniture of the period, which shows that it would have been well-known and deeply meaningful to Bach's congregation. The repeat of the aria's beginning returns us to raising a song to the Lord in thanks for his mercy and his eternal faith in us. 
Number four is the central piece of the cantata. It's a sermon in music. It's a dialogue between hope and fear. An unusual procedure for a sacred cantata. There are lots of dialogues in Baroque secular cantatas. The, the contest between Phoebus and Pan all played out as kind of little unstaged operas, but not so common in a sacred work. Hope sings, to be joyful in Jesus' life is bright sunshine in our breasts. My eye beholds the Savior resurrected. Death does not hold him in his bonds. Then fear replies, no eye beholds the Savior resurrected. Death still holds him in its bonds. And so a classic dialogue begins. In this highly polarized time in which we live, where people with differing opinions on seemingly any issue have difficulty reaching a mutual understanding, it's helpful to realize, to understand the difference between dialogue and debate. This was as true at the time of Socrates and Bach as it is today. In dialogue, one listens to understand, to make meaning, and to find common ground. Whereas in debate, one listens to find flaws, to spot differences, and to counter arguments. In dialogue, one presents one's best thinking, expecting that the other's point of view will help improve it rather than threaten it, and can remain open to change. Debate assumes a single answer, a conclusion, and a winner. I wish we had more dialogue and less debate in our public discourse. Here, Bach presents us with a dialogue. In this musical dialogue, hope expresses confidence in the risen Lord, but fear doubts that the grave can release the dead. Like the disciple Thomas, fear does not want to believe what it cannot see. These are not two opposing ideas, but represent the beliefs and doubts of faith we all struggle with. Even though the sung words are contrary, the musical substance is almost the same. Part of us feels we need to see the Lord as he was revealed to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in order to believe. The other part of us believes that through faith alone, our eyes can behold the risen Lord. Fear, finally being reassured by faith, concludes that the God who works wonders has strengthened my spirit through the power of comfort so that it knows the resurrected Jesus. When I was an undergraduate, a lot of years ago, I was required to take a course in either religion or philosophy. At that point in my life, I felt as though I'd had enough church. Having been raised Lutheran and having sung in church choirs since before my voice changed, I found out too late that philosophy texts and writings might as well have been written in Urdu for all I understood and was able to retain. However, I've come across various philosophical ideas that I can actually understand and relate to. One that is particularly meaningful to today and to this cantata was written half a millennium ago by the founder of modern philosophy, René Descartes, who died 15 years before the birth of Bach, to put it in historical perspective. In his book, The Passions of the Soul, he wrote, Hope is a disposition of the soul to persuade itself that what it desires will come to pass. 
which is caused by a particular movement of the spirits, namely by that of mingled joy and desire. And fear is another disposition of the soul, which persuades it that the thing will not come to pass. And it is to be noted that although these two passions are contrary, uh, one may nonetheless have them both together. That is, when one considers reasons, uh, both, uh, different reasons at the same time, some of which causes one to judge that the fulfillment of one's desires is a straightforward manner, while the others makes it seem difficult. And neither of these passions ever accompanies desire without leaving some room for the other. Okay, I'm going to boil it down just a little bit. Uh, the main points, both hope and fear can exist in us at the same time. What they have in common is desire. Hope is caused by combining joy and desire, persuading the mind that what you desire will happen. Fear is caused by being persuaded that the desired result will not happen. I hope this makes things clearer. (laughs) It's very possible that Bach, the learned musician that he was, had been aware of this passage. The whole dialogue between hope and fear is really the soul's internal struggle between faith and doubt. So hope, fear, faith, doubt. How can this be represented in musical terms? Rather than the usual back and forth exchange, one voice answering the other, in this final duet, Bach has the tenor and alto presenting opposite points of view simultaneously, further reinforcing the idea they exist in the same time at the same time. It's very hard to see that in the translations because it's kind of hard to lay one right over the other and have you be able to read it. Hope is represented by an assertive dance theme played via the violin in the opening bar of the the introduction. Fear is heard in longer repeated notes, fearing the darkness of the grave. But soon after, the alto line begins to become similar to the tenor, signaling that hope is winning over fear or rather than winning, is, in the debate, is persuading, reassuring fear. The middle section takes on a more secure tone, the two voices closely following each other. This time, the tenor has the longer notes in what almost sounds like a hymn or chorale tune. In the last words before the closing chorale, the tenor and alto join together, singing that their hearts are now full of comfort that through God we can triumph over death and the grave. The two conclude in a perfect duet, singing eight bars on one syllable on the word victory. Notably, both voices end in unison. The duet concludes with a return to the joyous violin solo that opened the duet. Its infectious progressions and rhythms propel the work to its conclusion with the cello joining the momentum in the last two bars. The final chorale is taken from the third verse of a hymn that is still found in some hymnals. Christ ist erstanden. It is possibly the oldest liturgical song in German, dating from around 1100, and it was a hymn to venerate the cross. It's a form of medieval church song where each verse ends with the word Kyrie Leis, which is a sort of a German shortened version of Kyrie Eleison, or Lord have mercy. It joyfully reaffirms the conclusion of the duet, we should all be joyful, 
for Christ will be our comfort. Now, just, just a word that's, uh, that when we present the cantata, and because it's presented as part of the service, as it would have been during box time, it's not a performance. So I would ask you to withhold your applause through the remaining the prayers, through the uh, final hymn, and even, please, through the postlude presented by the orchestra. And then uh, express your thanks as you wish. Thank you. Now, Cantata 66, Rejoice, You Hearts. <laughs> 